Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Steve, and it's been a while since I've been up here. Sorry, Matt, I'm moving all your stuff out of the way because, you know, I like to move. Um, it's been a while since I've been up here to share, and so I'm grateful for the opportunity again this morning. Um, I read an article this past week about this guy. Anyone know who this is? Mark Wahlberg. How many people are familiar with Mark Wahlberg's work? An accomp- a new- no, you're wrong. Yeah. Mark Wahlberg is uh, a Hollywood actor, done a lot of things. And uh, on his Instagram story this week, somebody a- or on his Instagram or whatever, somebody asked him to uh, share what his daily routine looked like. And this is what he posted on his Instagram story. I don't know, can you read that? A few things to notice here. 2.30 a.m., Wake up. Prayer time. Uh, breakfast workout, post-workout, blah, 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 blah. Okay, notice here, wait, 3.40. 3.40 in the morning, this guy's working out. And then at 4 o'clock p.m., he's working out again. And we thought Scott was pretty amazing with his noon hour, 10-mile runs. This guy's doing that twice a day, Scott. <laughs> This is what he goes on to say in the interview. He says, I start my day every day by getting on my hands and my knees and starting a time of prayer and reading, reading scripture. Then I feel I can go out there and conquer the world or at least do my job and give back because I've been blessed by so much. If you've been with us at all in the past two months, you'll know that we've been doing a series on prayer. Pastor Keith has been... um, going through the Psalms, using the Psalms as sort of a backdrop to uh, guide this community into uh, rediscovering or maybe discovering for the first time the value and the wonder of having intimacy with our Father through prayer. And this morning we want to continue that theme of prayer. Uh, We want to look at developing a habit of prayer. We all want to become Mark Wahlberg by the end of this. But the truth is I'm not any Mark Wahlberg. Truth be told, I'm barely... Donnie Wahlberg. If you're under 30, you won't get that reference. There's the new kids on the block, may when. This is my man right here. I'm barely this guy. Um, my point is I, uh, I haven't arrived, as it were, uh, at a place where I can say I pray with the sort of regularity that Mark Wahlberg prays and sort of a daily commitment where he's so disciplined to be able to do that. In fact, I know that uh, many of you in this room this morning are far more consistent, far more faithful in your prayer lives, uh, have discovered sort of the, whatever that key is to um, an intimate prayer life. Your prayer warriors who are committed, and uh, when you say, I'll pray for you, you actually do it. Um, and not to say I don't do that all the time, but I can't honestly say I do that all the time. Um, we know that you actually mean it. And like Mark, you're just you've developed not just a habit, but a way of life, uh, of intimacy with the Father. And that's to be admired. And so I'm a bit sheepish to be um, teaching this morning on this topic about forming a habit of prayer when my own life sort of doesn't have much of one. That said, I think that maybe my uh, particular position regarding prayer or my experience with prayer might offer a bit of a, a peculiar or a bit of a Um, unique perspective on this that hopefully uh, will be able to teach us a few things. Um, So this morning I want to look at what's involved in creating a habit of prayer, but not so much at the granular level. I'm not really interested in the habits 
that, or, or the ingredients required of uh, forming prayer, more at the relational level, more at the, uh, the life-giving, the, life, the way we live our lives level of, uh, that leads to a habit of prayer. And I'll get into what I'm talking about this morning. And the reason is because I think actually we all know, or many of us know, we're pretty familiar with what are the ingredients of forming a, a habit of prayer in our lives. If I were to ask you that question, what would you say? Shout out some answers. What is required to build a habit of prayer? Praying. Discipline. What else? Motivation. Consistency. What else? Schedule. Daily schedule. Absolutely. Priorities. Sorry, what was it? Sorrow. Wow, yes. What other ingredients are required in order to form a consistent daily pattern of prayer or or, uh, an approach to prayer that it becomes sort of this um, intimate part or an intricate part of your life and the way you live day to day? Anything else? A place to do it. Find a location. Absolutely. Here, a whole bunch of them. A daily routine, mindfulness, silence, being distraction-free, time frame. I think that was said. Praying aloud, using your voice. It helps you sort of stay focused. Posture, sitting, standing, kneeling. Location, it was said. Shared experience. So I think you proved my point that um, we already know what's involved in forming a habit of prayer, don't we? And so why don't we do more of it? <laughs> why is prayer such a central part of Scripture, such a, a central part of the life of Jesus, uh, why is it such an integral part of the Christian life that we'd all agree is absolutely, you know, absolutely essential to have? Why is it that um, it's usually kind of the last thought of the day before we close our eyes? Or it's sort of the, an afterthought for most of us? And so I venture to guess that for most of us, the question isn't how do I develop a habit of prayer, but rather why am I not motivated to develop a habit of prayer? Why can't I pray habitually? Why can't I be consistent with this? Pretty loaded question, a huge question. I don't know the full answer to that question. I'll give you that this morning. Um, and I understand that as we go through this teaching this morning, I'm not pointing any fingers out there. I am squarely pointing at myself here as I wrestle through this stuff. And I invite you at your own risk, at your own sort of self-assessment to, to join in on this discussion, to join in on some of these, uh, these things we just, we'll talk about. But understand that there's no judgment here at all on anyone. <laughs> These, uh, like I said earlier, there are amazing sort of Mark Wahlberg-esque prayers in this room. You've got it together. You're doing great. And I want to just encourage you to do that. I want to celebrate that in our community. But for the rest of us, what is it that will move the gauge of prayer, desire, slightly forward to the point uh, where it becomes just a regular part of our lives? And now, I, I understand that Keith has been... Um, Basically asking that question throughout the last two months, throughout the beginning of September and October, as we've gone through this question. And last week, Ryan uh, wrestled with that sort of in, indirectly through his uh, addressing unanswered prayer. It's sort of the question, like, what is it that, that keeps us or, or that's going to get us to the point of praying regularly? Because it's obviously a problem in our community, not just this community, but in the church at large. Um, so in one res- respect, we're not talking about anything new here this morning. But when I reflect on my own life and... Uh, Think of the times in which prayer um, was most vivid, most real, most consistent, um, when it was just a regular part of my day, when it was instinctive to just my everyday. There is this pattern that emerges that's a reflection of the way I lived. And um, 
as I read through the Psalms and as I look at the life of David, I see that similar pattern and other, other authors of scripture as well. We, we see that same pattern. When we look at the life of Jesus, this pattern starts to emerge. And I think it's in looking at that pattern and sort of like scratching the surface of that pattern that we can get a clue on how to pray habitually. It will lead us, at least incline us toward praying more habitually. And so um, I want to look this morning at Psalm 61. I'll have it up on the board here. And, and really, any number of psalms can um, speak to this point because it's not the specific psalm that tells us the story, but it's the life of the psalter, the person who wrote the psalm, that reflects this pattern. Um, psalm 61 begins with despair, like many of, the, many of the psalms. It ends with a reflection on God's faithfulness and his righteousness. And it actually, uh, interestingly, in this psalm, David, the, the, the author of this psalm, he um, makes a vow to go to God daily in prayer and praise. So let's read it. It says this. Oh God, listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I cry to you for help when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the towering rock of safety. For you are my safe refuge, a fortress where my enemies cannot reach me. Let me live forever in your sanctuary, safe beneath the shelter of your wings. For you have heard my vows, O God, to praise you every day. And you have given me the blessings you reserve for those who reverence your name. You will give me added years of life as rich and full as those of many generations all packed into one. And I shall live before the Lord forever. O send your loving kindness and truth to guard and watch over me, and I will praise your name continually, fulfilling my vow of praising you every or each day. So as I said, if you read the Psalms, you see this uh, somewhat of a pattern emerging where the author cries out to God in desperation for rescue. And David was the guy who did that a lot. And there's something to that, isn't there? Crying out to God at the end of our rope. Crying out to God when we just don't know where else to turn. The darkest night of our soul, at the hardest times in our lives, it's something we instinctively do. And I've been there, I'm, I'm sure you have too, because life gets hard, so hard in fact, that we eventually concede <clears throat> we, we can't do this thing on our own. We can't achieve whatever it is we're trying to achieve here on our own. And we call out to God for help. And we see this in the lives of the Israelites. The, the history of Israel is, is replete with that pattern of being pushed against the wall, being oppressed, being just stricken down, and in that moment crying out to God. And the Bible says that God hears the cry of the oppressed and he responds. It's a pattern in scripture. And when I look at my life, uh, at the times, as I said, where I have had mo the most honest prayers, the most raw prayers, where I have not held back anything, where I have been angry with God, where I have, um, yeah, where I've just laid it all out there for him. I can see this pattern emerging that in those moments, my lifestyle reflects absolute challenge and burden and hardship. It always says, I remember this, um, or, or just a disbelief of the reality of the world that it, we see. I remember this time, uh, um, we were in Jamaica 15 years ago, which is crazy. 
Um, my wife and I weren't wife and I, we weren't wife, we weren't married <laughs> yet. And uh, we were uh, in, in Jamaica on a mission trip. I probably talked about this in the past. We were there for a month because that's what you do. You go to Jamaica and fall in love. Anyway, not part of the story. Um, we were doing just different work down there. And we were working with one or two different orphanages. And by working, I meant we went and hugged and cuddled little cute kids. It was amazing. But these were children who had, been, who had disabilities and different issues or whatever with their lives. That As a result of that, their families had kind of abandoned them and left them for the state to basically take care of. And so these state-run orphanages uh, were just an absolute squalor. They're just terrible conditions. And so we went there, and we would hold these little kids and our hearts would break. I remember my prayers in those days as we were doing that were real. You know what I mean? They were very, very raw. There are times where I was angry with God. How could you let this injustice happen? How could these things kind of happen? It, it was me crying out to God, being overwhelmed with this injustice in the world. The Psalms say this, Oh, listen, oh God, listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I cry to you for help when my heart is overwhelmed. A cursory look at David's life and the reflecting Psalms reveal a similar pattern. Always in pursuit of righteousness, always in pursuit of pleasing God and doing what God's will is in his life, David, as a result, continually encountered conflict, and challenge, and was overwhelmed. That forced him to cry out to God. See, we were designed to be in communion with God. This is part of the way we were made. And we have the freedom to ignore that inclination toward communion with God. We have the freedom to <clears throat> suppress that desire for communication, communion with God. We have the freedom to flat out reject that desire for communion with God. But it is in those moments, I think, of trial, of hurt, of pain, of a, sense, a deep sense of injustice and something is wrong with this world. When we are in the throes of that, in the midst of that, my conviction is that we have nowhere else to turn but onto our knees asking God for help, crying out to God for help. Do you relate to that? If you're a part of a small group this past week, perhaps you took part in the formation in common. How many, did anyone do that? Raise your hand if you did that. So like three people. Great. That's okay. We're going we're gonna to take a look. Walter Brueggemann, um, Keith, Pastor Keith pre prepared the, the formation in common. If you have no idea what formation in common is, that's okay. It was a passage of uh, scripture accompanied with sort of a spiritual master, and we reflected on it as a group. No big deal. Not the end of the world if you don't follow. But the passage that um, was shared in the Formation in Common this past week, um, Brueggemann suggests that the journey of life or, or, or faith or whatever you want to call it is typically lived through a number of stages. Um, he calls them orientation, disorientation or dislocation, then reorientation and relocation. And orientation is that, is that stage of life that kind of makes sense. Everything is sort of even keel. Nobody's rocking the boat. Life can be lived. You know, you've got all the answers, albeit they might be simplistic answers, but everything's kind of more or less calm and, and steady, and you can just kind of coast, right? That's, that's called orientation. 
And this is what he says. He says that uh, in the Psalms, the author's words do not typically arise from situations of orientation. Rather, people are driven to such poignant prayer and song as are found in the Psalms precisely by experiences of dislocation and relocation. It is experiences of being overwhelmed. It is experiences of being nearly destroyed and also experiences of surprisingly uh, being given life that empower us to pray and to sing. Isn't that a beautiful quote as you reflect on the Psalms? People are driven to such poignant prayer and songs as are found in the Psalms because of their dislocation, the dissonance that they may feel in their life. Being in over your head, being at the end of a rope, hanging on by a hair, being overwhelmed as David is in this psalm, as well as those life-giving moments, and we'll look at that in a few minutes as well. All of these circumstances, though, are what prompt David and the other writers of the psalms to pray. This is, I believe, the true backbone of what it means to start in a formation or in, a, in building a habit of prayer in our lives. So we can, write, we can word it like this. Steps developing a desire for prayer. A life utterly dependent on Jesus. And I mean that dependent on Jesus. What does that look like? Well, it looks like taking on challenges in life that are going to yield fruit for other people. It looks like being vulnerable with your family when they won't cut you any slack. It looks like giving of your time to causes that are worthy, that excite, that are aligned with the desires of Jesus, that Jesus loves, but that honestly you would probably rather ignore. It looks like forgiving recklessly in our lives, people that have hurt us. It looks like seeking justice and standing up for the vulnerable and for the voiceless when they can't do it. It looks like not defaulting to just pursuing the path of least resistance in their everyday moments. Actually embracing the challenges. Actually moving forward when it's hard. Building resilience. This all can be summed up by living kingdom-oriented lives. Jesus' kingdom-oriented lives with a purpose and a passion for healing this broken world. This is macro-level stuff. But it is expressed in our individual lives by our everyday choices and, the, and the, 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 the way that we live our lives and in what we pursue. Another way of saying this might be living lives that are aligned with God's will in this world. Living lives that are aligned with God's will in this world. I was, um, as I often am when I prepare messages, totally distracted. And uh, what I typically do, I, I, my office is uh, right beside my bookshelf and I'm always looking for anything that will distract me from doing the task at hand. I'm terrible. I'm awful at that. Anyway, um, I was flipping through book, a, a book that was on the side uh, or on my bookshelf, and it was called um, Good News About Injustice. And it's the story of International Justice Mission. How many are familiar with that? Many of you are. Great. Anyway, I just kind of looked on the back cover, and there was an endorsement of the book, and it, it began with this line. God has called us to love what he loves and despise what he despises. 
God has called us to love what he loves and despise what he despises. And really that's, I think, what it comes down to. When we do this, when we love what God loves, when we despise what God despises, when our lives, when our wills align with God's will in this world, I believe, I could be wrong here, but the pattern of Scripture seemed to suggest this, that when we do that, it will naturally take us into challenging circumstances, into, into moments in our life that we can't handle on our own, and the natural response will be to cry out to God. And out of that, we can build a habit of prayer. Out of that necessity, we can build a habit of prayer. Does that make sense to you? Have you seen that in your own life? That in the hardships and the hardest times in your life, you cry out to God? I'm not inviting us to live a life that's just pure hardship. I don't think Jesus wants us to do that. We'll talk about the flip side of this in a minute. But I think it's a clear pattern that we see in our lives, that we see in the life of David, and we see in the life of Jesus as well. This pattern that when hardships come, our instinct is to turn to God. And when hardships come uh, are when we love the things God loves and despise the thing God despises, because that's going to be, that's going to invite conflict, that's going to invite disorientation and dislocation into our lives, and we have nowhere else to go but to Jesus. For David, we see this all through his life. One example. Uh, remember the time that he sneaks up to a sleeping Saul in the cave. This is found in 1 Samuel 24. Saul and his army are pursuing David's life. They want him dead. Because Saul's this raving, jealous lunatic. And uh, David is pursuing righteousness all through this story. All through the, 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 the being a fugitive and on the run. He will not raise a hand against the king because he knows that goes against the heart, the desire of God. And so, Paul, or, so David is in the cave, and uh, he's there first, and he's kind of like hanging out there. And then Saul and his army decide to kind of retire there for the night. And as they're in deep sleep, David comes up to him. Now, David has two choices. He can slit his throat, and in doing that, he doesn't have to be on the run anymore. He can take his rightful place as king. It seems like the challenges of all this bad stuff will kind of fade. Or he can cut a, piece of robe, uh, cut a piece of Saul's robe and carry on as a fugitive. And what do we see him do? He, carries on, he cuts this piece of robe to show Saul, listen, I didn't mean you any harm. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Right? What is the consequence of that on David's life? He spends the next period of his life continually on the run, always afraid, always moving forward, trying to escape the enemy, always running away from Saul. But what does that cause him to do in his prayer life? The Psalms reflect this. There's a number of Psalms that show that in that time of being a fugitive, in that time of fleeing, David cried out to God for rescue over and over and over again. It was because he was faithful to God, he pursued the heart of God, that it had him wound up in this situation that all he could do was cry out to God. Does that make sense? If you think about it, the real habit that we're talking about this morning isn't one of developing necessarily a consistent prayer life, but instead it's one of developing a life that pursues righteousness, that pursues God's will, 
that pursues loving the things that God loves, despising the things that God despises. And out of that habit, out of learning to grow in that regard, the reward, the natural reward of intimacy with her father comes. It's sort of forced on us because we have no other choice. And at the very least, it, inclu- it inclines us more toward prayer, at which point practicing the habit of prayer can take over and make it a regular part of life. So I won't be so naive as to say, you know, you embrace the will of God and all of a sudden you're going to start praying, you know, automatically. That doesn't happen. But it at least inclines us more toward growing in intimacy in God. Can we at least concede that? And I think it does. This is convicting, but I wonder if our ability to pray regularly isn't at least in part due to not needing anything bigger than ourselves to help us. Let me say that again. I wonder if our inability to pray consistently, to pray regularly, to have that deep intimacy with God isn't at least in part due to us not really needing anything bigger than us to help us out. What do I mean by that? Or or at least we don't think we need anything bigger than ourselves. We kind of just join the tide of culture, right? We have have that tendency to do that. We kind of um, align with the pursuits of the world. Uh, We kind of cave into our own selfish ambitions and desires at times. And when we do that, we can kind of get along just fine, for the most part. Life can be lived more or less in this sort of state of orientation, as, as Brueggemann says. You know, don't rock the boat. You know, sure, we have the old prayers to God that are like, God, I need you to get me out of this traffic ticket. I will, for, you know, the, I will forever honor you and I'll pray more. Uh, or I need you to help me pass this test. We throw up these sort of Hail Marys as, uh, as requests, but... The kind of prayers that reveal to ourselves our true nature, that show our vulnerability, and that are raw, that are honest, that come from the depths of our heart, those kind of prayers come, I believe, through embracing the challenge, the the disorientation of a life that loves the things God loves, despises the things that God despises. You look at Jesus' life, you see this pattern emerge as well. Jesus, of course, we'd all agree, lived his entire life loving the things that God loved, despising the things that God despised, didn't he? Right? His whole mission was to basically do that in his pronouncement of the gospel. And so it cost him dearly to do that. The gospel has all sorts of moments of upheaval, of uncertainty, of disorientation. This is the Son of God going through this. Right? And what is his most raw and vulnerable prayer recorded? Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane about to, you know, endure the most agonizing, suffering time. And he says, God, can you please take this from me? I don't want to do this. Take this cup from me. And God doesn't respond. And then Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And so he goes to the cross with all the agony that it entails. And so it's no wonder that the Gospels record over a dozen specific prayers from Jesus. Several times, I don't know, three or four times, Jesus spends teaching on the topic of prayer and on, uh, uh, on the subject. Five times the gospel mentions Jesus going away to pray in solitude. 
There's a correlation there, friends. The life of Jesus and his desire and his um, commitment to live God's will out in this world cost him a lot of comfort. And as a result, it forced him to his knees to pray. It was a major part of Jesus' life. It's a major part of the Gospels. Prayer was an absolutely necessary habit of Jesus's. It goes on. Let's see. Sorry. For you have heard my vows, O God, to praise you every day, and you have given me the blessings you reserve for those who reverence your name. You will give me added years of life as rich and full as those of many generations all packed into one. And I shall live before the Lord forever. Oh, send your loving kindness and truth to guard and watch over me, and I will praise your name continually, fulfilling my vow of praising you each day. So, returning to that quote of Brueggemann, he says this, it is experiences of being overwhelmed, nearly destroyed, and surprisingly given life that empowers us to pray and sing. So it's not just in the seasons of being overwhelmed, in the seasons of being at the end of our rope, in those situations, that brought David to his knees, but it was also in those life-giving moments that caught him by surprise. Isn't that cool? It's the realization of God's loving kindness and truth, as we see in the psalm, of his watching over David and protecting him, the realization of this joy of living with the Lord forever that turned him in gratitude to, the, to his Lord. Are you feeling that? It actually caused him to commit to make a vow of praising God daily which is what I want us to do, which is what God wants us to do. Come to him daily. Come to him whenever we can, praising him. And it worked for David. David is committed to making a habit of praising God every day, and that comes out of gratitude, seeing God's faithfulness in his life. So the second pattern toward a more robust prayer life is being open. I missed that. But it's being open and having eyes to see life-giving surprises. That is being reoriented. Let's say that. Being reoriented. Um, and, being, and pointing us back to the author of love. And what does that look like? It can look like so many different things. It could be something as simple as being mindful of your breathing. Taking a breath and realizing that is a gift from God. That he sustains us breath by breath. It could be enjoying freshly ground coffee, which I saw was back up this morning. Thank you to the volunteers who did that. It could be, for me, snuggling with my four-year-old daughter underneath the bed sheets in the morning and telling her scary stories and listening to her giggle. I love that. It turns me in gratitude toward my father. It could be running for some of us. Not many of us, but for some of us. There's that line from uh, Chariots of Fire that Eric Little said, when I run, I feel his, what? Pleasure. It can be reading a book, creating something, going fishing, sharing a joke between friends. It can be all of these things that are life-giving that can surprise us if we're open to it. And we see this pattern in the Psalms that it's not just the trials and, and the disorienting moments of life that led the Psalter to cry out to God, but it was in the reveling in the pleasures and joys of life as well. It was, sit, it was sitting on the hillside watching his sheep, you know, listening, I imagine, to the stream flowing by, reflecting on his life and the goodness of God that David penned 
the most famous psalm. And these beautiful words. He said, the Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Some of the most honest and beautiful prayers in the Psalms stem from a reflection and an awareness of the goodness and faithfulness and loving kindness of God as revealed in all these different things. And so much of life can point us toward that if we are open to these life-giving moments. And that's really what these are. These are life-giving moments. And so a third quick observation is that you can't form a sustainable habit of prayer. You can't form lasting intimacy with God if it's just prayers of gratitude and nothing else. Vice versa, you can't form a sustainable, intimate relationship with God if it's always asking God for help out of the most dire situations in your life. We need to know the goodness and righteousness of God. We need to be so mindful of that, friends. Absolutely. We need to take joy in the pleasures of creation. We need to take joy in our relationships with one another. Gratitude has to flow out of this. But at the same time, we also need to know what it is to pursue the heart of God and accept that in that pursuit, there will be challenge and there will be conflict and there will be dissonance and dislocation and disorientation that is going to cause us to cry out to God. It's a balancing act. It's both. Prayers of all gratitude and no help or prayers of all help and no gratitude will be exhausting and ultimately will lead to an unsustainable prayer life. So I want to close with just a bit of a thought before uh, we wrap this up. Last week, we did a, a gig retreat with a lot of the youth in this community down in uh, Grand Marais. And the teaching topic of the weekend was on vocation, and specifically on listening to the voice of God, hearing God speak. And I got to share on Sunday morning about um, spiritual practices. Why do we do spiritual practices? Which is a question that's sort of weaving its way through this whole series as well. What's the point of the spiritual practices at all? And interestingly, if you were to ask the, the Pharisees in Jesus' time, what is the point of the spiritual practices, their actions would explain to or would tell us that the point of the spiritual practices, of praying, of silence, of giving to the needy, of fasting, the point of that is to be noticed by others. That's what they would say. But we don't practice spiritual practices to be noticed, do we? We practice to notice. We develop a habit of prayer so that we can notice. And specifically, we can notice God in our world communicating to us through each other, through the Word, through creation, through any number of different ways, but if we're not practicing those things, if we're not regularly praying, if we're not being sensitive and open to uh, what might be said to us, we'll miss it. So it's about noticing God and his community. And so this morning, do you want to hear what God is saying to you? Is that a question that you're just constantly perplexed by? God, I can never hear you. God, I don't know what you're saying. What am I supposed to do with my life? How am I supposed to move forward? What should I do in this circumstance? If that's a question that is driving you nuts, then I'm going to encourage you to develop a habit of prayer. 
so that you can notice him speaking all around you. And do you want to develop a habit of prayer? Well, if you do, then I'm going to encourage you to do these three things. Pursue God's heart. Uh, I think I screwed this up. Okay, pursue God's heart. Loving what he loves, despising what he despises. That will lead you into more intimate prayer. Be open, be open to life-giving surprises. There we go. Like that. Being grateful for the beauty and the wonder that's all around us. The gifts that just, like, I look at the snow right now. Everyone turn out there and look at the beautiful snow falling. That should cause a giant thank you. Amen? But not too much. And finally, learn the, learn the balance of each. So run and rest. Defend and rejoice. Stand up for the lowly. Bask in God's presence. Be present. Be aware. I haven't gotten there yet, as I said. I've tasted glimpses of this in my life. Moments of utter dependency on God because of a pursuit of righteousness, because I've pursued justice, because I've, in moments of my life, I've actually done pretty um, impressive things for God. Well, I haven't, but I've sought to do them. But in those moments, I have found the intimacy of God to be really dear and near to my heart. And I have learned over my years as a follower of Jesus that every gift in this world is from him, stems from him. And being open to that reality, recognizing that every gift is a life-giving moment that encourages us and that should within us spill out, gratitude should spill out from within us. My prayer this morning is for all of us in this room to become more inclined toward forming a habit of prayer through means of a transformed life. Because that's where it begins. And that through a transformed life, we might build a habit of prayer. Does that make sense? My prayer is that each of us in this morning would experience a transformed life as a result of forming a habit of prayer. And that through a transformed life, we might develop a habit of prayer. And so in doing, we would give, grow in intimacy with our Father as we develop ears to hear, eyes to see what God is saying to us, and that we might notice Him all around. Amen? I'm going to invite the band to come forward as we turn now to communion. And again, the time of the week that we are committed to this practice. Again, a practice that was introduced to us by Jesus himself. Something that we at Grassroots Church take quite seriously and we seek to do uh, on a weekly basis. It is an opportunity for us to learn to notice what it is God might be saying to us through the bread and the cup. This act of communion that we do as a community. There may be something that God is speaking to you this morning as we take this bread and this cup that uh, you need to just kind of figure out. And so I encourage you, take the bread, take the cup, sit at your chair in silence as we sing through some songs. Otherwise, for those who are just like, whatever, I'm just going to take the bread and cup because this is what I do every time. I want you to pause. And don't just make it a ritual, a ritual that just happens without thought. Take a few seconds extra this week, this morning, and 
contemplate what the bread and the cup represent in your life and in the life of our community. And may you spend just a few more moments in prayer, growing in your intimacy, inviting God to to allow us to move into the things that he loves, to pursue the things that he loves. Invite us, ask God to uh, open our eyes and open our ears and help us to be willing to embrace the dislocation, the disorientation of life as a result of serving him, as a result of following him. And that's my prayer this morning. So with that said, I welcome you to the table.